Guaido, his his rise in the past couple weeks is ironically because of the fact that most of the prominent leaders in his party, Voluntad Popular, are either in jail or abroad, right? So in some sense, the regime has created him and this position. So his presidency of the National Assembly, it was part of an opposition pact. It was his party's turn, and he was basically their only option. So you have this 35-year-old kind of comes out of nowhere, um, but really at a moment where the opposition needed a fresh face, they needed generational change. Um, and I think because of that, you're seeing this enthusiasm and a more unified opposition in a way that we haven't in a long time. On The Current Account this week, we're joined by Risa Grace Targo, Eurasia Group's analyst covering Venezuela and Central America. Thanks very much, Risa, for joining us. Thanks for having me. So Venezuela, uh, we have two presidents, apparently, and a number of countries have recognized the new one. Russia, Mexico, Iran, a few others are still recognizing Maduro. Um, Can you just walk us through what happened over the past couple of days? Most of the region, the U.S., um, Europe, a lot of countries came out after Maduro's May election and rejected it as as fraudulent, said they wouldn't recognize it based on the terms of the election. Um, and so I think there was a, an effort to uh, reinforce that message around the 10th of January, which is when he started his second term. But interestingly, what happened in the meantime is that the new leader of the National Assembly, which is controlled by the opposition um, and is at this point the only democratically elected institution in the country, according to the U.S. and the region, really kind of rose to prominence and I think provided the region and the U.S. with an alternate leader to to recognize. So instead of just rejecting Maduro, they now have an alternative and they, they went all in on that strategy on Wednesday by declaring him the legitimate interim president of Venezuela. So what does that actually mean? What does that change? Anything? Or this is just purely political and signaling? I mean, first and foremost, it's a strong political endorsement. I think it elevates Guaido's profile and it provides the opposition with more momentum, which is something that's really important in terms of their ability to force change here. Economically, kind of in practice, it's less clear. We're kind of entering into a new sphere here. So um, we had this awkward moment where Maduro announced that he was expelling the U.S. Embassy staff in Caracas the other day. Pompeo immediately said, oh, we don't respond to you. We respond to Guaido. And out of respect for Venezuelan democracy, the United States proudly recognized National Assembly President Juan Guaido as the interim president of Venezuela. The time for debate is done. The regime former President Nicolas Maduro is illegitimate. His regime is morally bankrupt. It's economically incompetent, and it is profoundly corrupt. It is undemocratic to the core. So we're already in this kind of weird parallel universe. Um, the opposition is now talking about appointing a new board at Citgo, their downstream subsidiary, freezing assets. My sense is that the Trump administration is exploring those options as well. But I think it's going to be a bit legally and logistically complicated. So a bit unclear how, how that track plays out. And why did Mexico stick with Maduro? You have Bolivia and Mexico in the hemisphere not shifting to recognize Yeah, uh, you know. Government. It's interesting because Mexico, uh, under the Peña Nieto administration, was actually playing a, a pretty proactive role in the in trying to negotiate the Venezuelan crisis and was a prominent member of the Group of Lima, this regional group that's been focused on Venezuela. 
AMLO, you know, he's kind of center left. Uh, he's very kind of non-intervention. Um, he came in and and basically stopped agreeing with uh, the group of Lima going his own way. Um, and so I think that's one recent kind of change we've had in the regional dynamic where you have all of the major economies really on board and on the same page when it comes to Venezuela, but now Mexico in a it's different way. It's change both ways. You have Mexico and then Brazil, which traditionally has really kind of prioritized this principle of, uh, you know, non-intervention and, you know, really quickly uh, leading to recognize as well. Yeah, no, Brazil, Argentina, Colombia, I mean, you now have this constellation of conservative governments in the region that I think are are very frustrated with the Venezuelan crisis. They hate Maduro, and they're really all on the same page of wanting him out. So for at least 10 years, I mean, going, you know, back well into the Chavez years, um, you've always had these expectations, not you personally, people in mm-hmm. general. In fact, you've been very good on saying this isn't going to happen. Yeah. Um, but people in general, analysts, you know, the markets, the media, there's always been this sense that this isn't sustainable, right? The economic damage, the damage to the oil and other infrastructure, more recently the refugee crisis. Uh, there's always been this sense that Venezuela cannot hold together, that there's got to be a breaking point. I mean, you, you know, I'm sure had been dealing for years and years with questions from clients, you know, is it going to happen next month? You know, anytime there's a protest, this sense of imminent collapse. And yet, for that decade plus, it has not happened. Is there any reason to believe that things are different now? So I would say there's a few different variables that are different in this moment um, that I I think are, are worth noting. The first is, as we were just talking about, that I think for the first time you have a regional consensus, notwithstanding Mexico, Nicaragua, Bolivia, et cetera, but you really have a regional consensus among most of the region that they want change and that it's a priority for them. And they're also on the same page as the U.S. and Canada, right? So you have, I would say, more international pressure and for the most part in the same direction than you've had in in kind of previous instances of unrest. I think more importantly, beyond that, you have a an alternative opposition figure and a unified opposition behind him. So the Venezuelan opposition, they've had momentum, they've had protest movements, etc. But even in those moments, you've had multiple opposition leaders, you've had public infighting, they've always been divided. Um, And I would say throughout most of the last year in particular, they were really at a, a kind of historic low in terms of internal cohesion, agreement on strategy, with no clear face on who was their leadership. So Interestingly, Guaido kind of comes out of nowhere. He's this new figure, um, and he's he's beyond a uh, a new face. Um, he's someone who's young. It uh, represents generational change within the opposition, which is something that I think is really important here. And and we have the opposition actually unifying around him, and uh, with this international support, really creating an alternative figurehead, which is something that's just been lacking in, in the last years. Yeah, it's harder to connect him to the pre-Chavez years where, you know, there was a lot wrong with the system, right? There was a reason why Chavez came in, in yeah. Venezuela and, and not elsewhere. Yeah, and I would say, I mean, the interesting thing is that Guaido, his his rise in the past couple of weeks is ironically because of the fact that most of the prominent leaders in his party, Voluntad Popular, are either in jail or abroad, right? So in some sense, the regime has created him and this position. So his presidency of the National Assembly, it was part of an opposition pact. Uh, it was his party's turn, and he was basically their only option. Wow. So you have this 35-year-old kind of comes out of nowhere, um, but really at a moment where the opposition needed a fresh face, they needed generational change. Um, and I think because of that, you're seeing this enthusiasm and a more unified opposition 
cohesion in a way that we haven't in a long time. So we have opposition, unity, and cohesion. We have international support, a consensus. Two related questions. Will the U.S. use this moment to more aggressively push regime change? And if so, what tools would it use? Are we talking about deepening of sanctions, something dramatic like an oil embargo? It's interesting. You know, Trump is generally seems predisposed at non-intervention, and he really uh, he stuck his neck out here, right? I mean, he's now involved. I think this, he led a coalition. Which he led a coalition, is, exactly. You know, worth noting. So he now has more at stake in this conflict, right? He needs to get change to happen. I think if change doesn't happen, it doesn't look great for him or the regional governments, right? Then you have this kind of awkward parallel government with, you know, little implication. So I think the U.S. has has now more at stake and we are going to see them acting more aggressively. What the White House has done is they've conditioned, essentially, they've threatened specific sanctions in response to how the government acts on the ground. Um, so, for example, they've said, if you go and arrest Guaido right now, if you target embassy staff, then we will respond with additional sanctions, right? So we're in this kind of standoff now to see how the government reacts. I think that's putting Maduro in a bind, right? But there's a menu of options on the table. They include expanding uh, the executive order from December that targeted gold sales to, uh, we could expand that to other sectors. There's a possibility of adding Venezuela to the state sponsors of terrorism list. And then there's targeting the oil sector. And there, the kind of milder option is to put a ban on the sale of diluents, lighter crudes um, from the U.S. to Venezuela, which Venezuela needs to mix with its heavy crude for it to be commercially viable, or to do the, the kind of nuclear option here is an, an import ban, um, where Venezuela wouldn't be able to sell their oil to the U.S. And what's the role of Russia and China here? Both governments have been really important in giving Maduro, I wouldn't say credibility, but certainly financing and you know support in different venues. Um, do they just let him go here? Does this become an irritant in U.S.-Russian and U.S.-Chinese relations? How do you see that part playing out? China, I would say, uh, you know, what they, we've seen a shift in strategy from them over the past several years, um, where I think essentially their priority at this point is to just get repaid. <laughs> they have about $20 billion in loans outstanding from Venezuela. I think they know that Maduro is and has been vulnerable. And so they've actually stopped providing him with fresh financing. We saw them pursuing a strategy of providing him with just flexibility on existing agreements. But even that seems to have come to an end. The Chinese didn't renew a grace period on an existing loan that expired last year. And so we're actually seeing them kind of change tax. So I don't see China putting its neck out here in terms of, of what they do to extend the regime. Obviously, rhetorically, they're going to reject the U.S. actions, etc. But I don't think they're going to come in with new financing. Russia, I think, is a bit different because I think Putin, there's a geopolitical angle here where Putin loves having a foothold in the U.S.'s backyard, as it were, um, and loves kind of thumbing it to the U.S. that way. There, I think we could see a bit more willingness to provide support. I still tend to think it's probably more in gestures of support, maybe even daring to send you know, some military equipment, something like that. But I don't think they have that much resources, that many resources available to throw more financing at this. But certainly, um, I think we could see more provocations from Russia in terms of the geopolitical story. So let's do some long-term <clears throat> prognosticating sort of scenario analysis here. Let's assume that we do get uh, regime change one way uh, or another over the next couple of, of months, and you end up with a legitimate government, opposition government recognized by the rest of the world. What What is your kind of broad outlook in that 
under that set of circumstances in terms of the economy, right? Can the economy uh, recover or is there so much fundamental damage to infrastructure that, that it's going to take a, a long time? More importantly, um, can you put all the pieces back together after you know so many years of, of Chavismo, uh, the damage to social cohesion, um, the attempt to delegitimize, you know, elites, uh, yep. et cetera. Uh, can you put it all back together in a functioning political system that actually supports a healthy economy in the next decade? So, look, I, I think first and foremost, you're not going to get a political transition without a negotiation, right? So I think the key, as we see this unrest unfolding and all this focus on Guaido, you know, the key is going to be the military abandoning Maduro, right? And and um, and seeing the, the inner circle around him decide that his regime is truly unsustainable. But the opposition is going to need the military as well, right? There's no, there's no transition without them involved. So in that sense, I think any transition is going to have to be a negotiation. There's going to have to be amnesty on the table. There's going to have to be a real conversation about uh, respecting the Constitution, the timeline for elections, what are the terms, what are the guarantees. I think that's necessarily going to have to involve the international community as well. Um, so that is obviously complicated, but I think that's the basis of kind of rebuilding political cohesion and setting a path forward. I think that's something that, at least in terms of the, the basics, you could negotiate and get moving towards new elections and the day after, you know, probably over six months to a year, right? But it certainly takes time. The economic story, very complicated, right? I would imagine an opposition government will go on day one to the IMF. Uh, it'll take massive financing for multilaterals, major aid from, from other countries, humanitarian aid, um, financing, et cetera. And they're gonna have to re renegotiate with all of Venezuela's creditors, and there's a lot of them, right? Um, so not only the bilateral creditors, you have Russia, China, the bondholders, uh, arbitration claimants, other corporations that are in Venezuela and have their debt. That's a very messy process. I think that's going to be you know, difficult yeah. to see how that plays out. I will say I think the depth of the hole in Venezuela is so big that you can get an immediate boost in terms of the economy just because we're at such a low point, especially if you have financing, helping the social safety net, trying to stabilize imports, those types of things. Longer term, I mean, for example, I, I could see a scenario, a path towards oil production stabilization, but really increasing production, really turning the story around, that's going to take a long time. So you spend most of your days talking to investors, clients of the firm who have specific questions on, on Venezuela. Has the tenor of those conversations changed in a meaningful way over the past week? And what I mean by that is are, are people kind of chomping at the bit to see an opportunity here to buy either PDVSA bonds or, or, or sovereign bonds? Um, and have you started to hear at all from the distressed investment community um, seeing a kind of medium or long-term turnaround story here? Absolutely. I mean, I would say over the last uh, year in particular, but a couple of years, I mean, the story here for bondholders, especially after um, Maduro defaulted on almost all of the both sovereign and PDVSA debt in late 2017, the story has really been, is there going to be political change or not? Because sure. absent political change with existing U.S. sanctions, you can't restructure um, with this government and lack of a credible plan, et cetera. There's just no way to, to, to restructure and, and any sort of agreement, right? So the singular question for bondholders over the last year has been, are we, are we going to get regime change? And for most of last year, it seemed very unlikely. There was a little bit of hope around the May elections, Falcone's uh, candidacy. But, you know, in the winter, I was having conversations with clients and they said, well, 
what is there to say? It was kind of throwing up their hands, right? Um, now, with these variables starting to fall into place, a couple of these variables changing, um, there's a lot of enthusiasm. Bonds have really rallied over the past couple of weeks, and you see investors really hoping and, and getting more optimistic that, that this time it's different. I, uh, I had a boss when I first started working in finance who said, hope is not an investment word, Alex. Um, <laughs> so, and I mean that not just as a joke, but what's the worst case scenario here? What could go wrong? Yeah. Could you have prolonged <clears throat> civil war? You've said the military is um, key, but is the military a unitary actor here or can you have splits? No, look, the, the military is certainly, um, it's it's not a homogenous actor. And what we've seen, what's become more evident over the last couple of years as the crisis has deepened is that the senior elements of the military who are part of the cabinet, who are <clears throat> who, who run PDVSA, right? They're very much part of the government. They're very bought in, but that the middle and lower ranks are obviously more disgruntled. We've seen kind of foiled efforts at um, at insurrections. A it's lot of defections. <laughs> a lot of defections from from the lower and middle ranks. So you know, I think what's key here in terms of forcing this story is that you need unrest to be significant enough, massive enough that. Either there's a real break in the chain of command, and those middle and lower ranks say, "We're not gonna, we're not gonna shoot our way out of this for you, Maduro." Right? Which I think is is a is a possibility, or that the the senior elements really feel like it's no longer sustainable. But I, I do think that the social variable there is key. If things get really violent, if there's if it requires a lot of bloodshed. I don't see a kind of civil war scenario in which that happens over a long period of time. I think that is the forcing event for a negotiation. It could happen over a shorter term, and obviously we've already seen violence happening. But I think that 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 becomes the forcing event, right? That the unrest is so significant, that the violence is so severe, that you have to come together and, and reach some sort of uh, some sort of settlement. Let me just mention one other element here that I think is is a variable that seems like it's starting to shift and which is going to be key. And that is we're starting to see unrest in Chavista neighborhoods and among the government's base of support, which has always been absent in the past. This is still, it's kind of early, it's hard to say. Um, but in addition to the opposition protests that we saw this week, which were massive, we're also seeing that in these areas of Caracas that are kind of bastions of government support, that there's there's protests in the street. A lot of it's happening at night. Um, it's kind of violent. Uh, it's confrontational. And it's inherently political. They're, they're calling for Maduro's resignation. So if the government really loses that base, if they start to join the protests, if that spirals out of control, then I think that's that's that feels much closer to the tipping point. Thanks so much. That was great. Sure.